Augmented reveals the stories behind a new era of industrial operations where technology will restore the agility of frontline workers. In episode 12 of the podcast, the topic is enterprise-wide quality of manufacturing. Our guest is Joseph DeFeo, CEO of Duran. In this conversation, we talk about the history of quality, its origins, the terms involved, and the evolution of the field into lean and agile. We discuss persisting workforce challenges, emerging trends, and best practices. We cover the future outlook. What's next? How to stay up to date. Augmented is a podcast for leaders, hosted by futurist Trun Arne Unheim, presented by Tulip.co, the manufacturing app platform, and associated with MFG Works, the manufacturing upskilling community launched at the World Economic Forum. Each episode dives deep into a contemporary topic of concern across the industry and airs at 9 a.m. U.S. Eastern Time every Wednesday. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast. Joe, how are you today? Good, how are you? Yeah, I'm excited. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about quality, and I know that's something you've been uh, working on for a while. Give me a, uh, a little idea, Joe, how you got into this business of, of quality. It's an interesting question. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of been in the family for uh, 35 years to an extent. And, uh, you know, I kind of got into it from from listening to my father's conference calls over the over the years as a child and, you know, never intended to go into this business until I was presented with an opportunity in 2010 to kind of learn, learn from him and from a lot of the other consultants. And I guess I've picked up a thing or two over the last, you know, 34 years, but I've been working with the company uh, for 10 years. Um, and so, you know, since 2016, I've kind of been my, my father's successor. Uh, my father um, was also the successor, successor of uh, Dr. Duran. And so it's kind of been, we've been continuing it on and, you know, he's still actively involved, but, you know, what I like most about what we do is, you know, helping people understand, you know, how to improve their quality of goods and services so that they're providing the most impact and benefit to their, to their customers and really just trying to become more effective and, you know, help businesses grow to ultimately help us. Got it. Um, you mentioned that you're sort of second, uh, the second successor. The history of the quality movement is, is sort of interesting. Um, can you give me a, a, a little sense of the origins of the, the term and uh, how your uh, firm has been involved in this quality movement? Yeah, so um, the, the, I'll start with uh, how our company became into existence. The company was founded in 1979 by Dr. Joseph M. Duran who started the company when he, when he was 75. And the reason why he started the company was to uh, continue to spread his message in, in the late seventies, you know, prior internet and e-learning, you know, he, he realized he didn't have a great um, way to continue his message because um, he was, you know, getting towards retirement. Um, and so, you know, he decided to record himself because, you know, he can only hit 25 people a week from, from one class. So he recorded himself and we started as kind of a, pre-dawn e-learning company of selling videotapes. And a lot of what's in those videotapes is through 50 years of research that he did prior to 1979. And, you know, he became um, pretty famous in the late 1950s when he was asked to go to Japan with uh, counterpart Edward Deming 
to teach um, organizations in Japan, including Toyota and amongst others. And he focused on a lot of the leadership and, you know, how to manage for quality um, and, you know, understanding the, the culture and the behaviors and the mindsets that really shape the organizations to improve the quality of goods and services. And so since then, he, you know, toured the world of providing um, different observations and assessments to really teach the organization what they needed to do to uh, improve. And he, the way he defined quality was um, the product or service is, you know, free of failure um, and exceeds and meets the, the customer's needs. So you're focusing on two things is the efficiency and effectiveness of a product um, and, you know, ultimately servicing the customer. Hmm. G- give me... Uh, also an idea of why this was so new. It's almost strange now to think that there never was a focus on quality before. How how did that happen? Was there just, uh, you know, industrial dynamics just didn't uh, really value quality? In the 1950s? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, And so, you know, quality's always been there. Um, Part of our old logo was ancient Egyptians, um, was the first sign of actually quality control, which was thousands of years ago. And so kind of what Dr. Duran did was expand upon thoughts um, from others, which he kind of expanded upon from, you know, Shuhart, Crosby, you know, going into the early 1920s, you know, late 1800s. Um, and, you know, a lot of what quality was at the time he was there was quality control, statistical control. Um and, you know, quality checks, inspections, that's all it really was. And kind of what he did is, you know, he took that and through his own experience and observations, you know, he identified ways that, you know, he used the scientific method um, to really understand, you know, what are the root causes way before Lean Six Sigma ever came about. And, you know, what he did was, and this he wasn't using a ton of statistics, but it was just, you know, observations, measurements, you know, using the scientific method to really understand what is the root cause, you know, solve for chronic issues and, you know, really come to a new level of control. And this is, you know, after seeing this over and over and over again, look at companies, how they work. um, And through his own research, he realized it became a universal principle is, you know, kind of what is main principles is his quality trilogy, which is kind of the universal principle about how companies operate. And so he kind of more or less just expanded on what was existing, but, you know, a lot of what he did really helped companies and it helped form the movements we see today within Lean Six Sigma Operations Excellence. You know, well, I, I wanted to get to that. Yeah, I, I wanted to get to Agile and, and Lean and Six Sigma uh, as well, but but just uh, briefly. So he wrote a few books. One was uh, a quality mm-hmm. handbook and some of it was building on Edward Denning's principles, I understand. So he was working in, uh, you know, we there were several. Together. Yeah, several people. They were people. kind of like counterparts. Right. Um. Yeah. And, and then the Pareto principle, which has become so important in many fields of life, uh, the 80-20 rule, was also yeah. or is also a very important part of this quality legacy. T- tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, and so the, the Pareto principle, with everybody knows, is the 80-20 rule. And I don't think people really understand and recognize where it comes from and not looking for the, the notoriety or the credit, but you know, the Pareto principle was was found out through... Dr. Duran, looking at the research that an Italian economist, Vilfredo Pareto, uh, conducted and, you know, identified that 
20% of the population in Italy in the late 1800s at 80% of the wealth. And he, you know, Dr. Tran looked at that and looked at, you know, it's a, another one of those universal principles. And that's why everyone today, it's like the 80, 20 rule. And some people call it the 90, 10 rule or the 70, 30 rule, just to kind of make it a little bit different or treat it as its own, but, but it's universal. And, you know, Dr. Duran, the, they wanted to call it the uh, Duran Pareto principle, but he's, you know, it's like, I didn't necessarily create it. I kind of just expanded upon it and did the research for that's why we call it, you know, the Pareto principle. And, you know, we use it from prioritizing projects to, you know, you can use it pretty much in any, anything and you can take something qualitative and make it quantitative. And it really helps to focus yourself and target what you're supposed to be doing. Hmm. And, and if we bring this up to today where we have these other things uh, over the last few decades with uh, agile and uh, which is kind of a new one and lean and, uh, Six Sigma and various other things that are also connected somehow to the quality movement. What does it mean today to do an assessment of a company? And, you know, or what we were talking about right now is, I guess, this notion of an enterprise-wide quality yeah. control. So another term for enterprise-wide quality was in the, you know, the 80s, the total quality management. It was not only getting, you know, from a manufacturing perspective, it's, not only getting the frontline workers or the production processes, but, you know, incorporating this mindset and cultural beliefs throughout the entire organization. And a lot of the Japanese um, companies adopted this and, but it struggled within the United States. And so thus TQ and movement only lasted about a half a decade to, you know, middle of the 19th, maybe about a half a decade to about five to 10 years and kind of fell out of sight, kind of moved into Lean Six Sigma. And it's kind of starting to circulate back, not as TQM, um, it's more or less just organizations have identified that, you know, they need to expand beyond just the production and, and, and really start to adopt this, this mindset of quality, which is, you know, agile teams, you know, smaller teams, faster things. And, you know, but a lot of what I see too, is people are looking to do enterprise wide quality, but they think quality is only lean or efficiency or agile, but it's more or less what, what, what we teach and, you know, how to think about it. It's, those are all different tools in the toolbox, but it's how do you manage and, you know, how do you structure that toolbox and what do you pick at the right times? And a lot of that is strategic, you know, it's what, what is your approach? How do you deploy it? What are your results? And starting small and expand throughout the organization over time. And people may think that's too slow, but um, it'll reduce the rework down the line. You'll get exponential in performance instead of getting incremental in performance. Um, and also, you know, with the idea of technology now is, you know, the, the person, the workforce within the quality organization is a little bit behind. Um, and so the only way to really scale quality within an organization is to have some type of technology component, not to replace the employee, but to kind of augment their skills and uplift them to make them more productive, more effective at doing their jobs. Hmm. Well, it is the balance between technology and humans uh, on the, on the mm -hmm. shop floor or in the workforce, because th this seems to be a perennial question. There was, you know, at various stages in history, there's always this optimism around technology necessarily making everybody more efficient. But then time and time again, you know, we're kind of disillusioned by it as well. Yeah, and I think we're disillusioned that the only thing is about efficiency, productivity, output, um, you know, coming back from the 1920s from the Taylor system um, and, you know, being obsessed with output and productivity. It's just, you know, if I could produce more product faster, cheaper, better, you know, that 
that'll make my profits go up. Um, and so sometimes, and it's also a little bit easier. Um, it's easier to do lean. It's easier, more fit. It's focuses on efficiency. It's a little easier to chew. It's, you know, not as so uh, challenging. You don't have to use as many statistics. And so, you know, people pick that because it's a little bit, you know, easier to go through. Um, it's, a, you know, people, humans are wireless path, the path to least resistance. And so, you know, however, it'll eventually catch up with you. And, you know, there will be times when you have recalls and, you know, you got to manage both the effectiveness and you can do both at the same time. It's just as long as the workforce has the skills and capabilities to do it. If they don't, they'll pick something. And, you know, it's almost like, you know, you know, we're profitable. We do this, but it's, you know, if you focused on both, you could be that much more profitable or that much more um, revenue growth. So it really takes also the, the leadership to really identify that they, they want to do this um, because there's a lot of leaders that say we want to do it, but they don't act upon it. I'm curious, Joe, when you or Duran goes into a manufacturing company and, and, and tries to implement quality, what, what do you do? What's step one? And what are the questions you ask? What are the things you're looking for? What's the data that tells you what the challenge or, or problem is? And, you know, and how do you start then identifying fixes to, uh, to, uh, to these fairly vague problems sometimes? Or are they actually pretty obvious? I mean, are you going in with like, here's a bottleneck, please fix it for us? Or are, is it much more, uh, you know, <laughs> you know obtuse best, than that? The best um, consultant speak is it depends. <laughs> yeah. It depends on the customer. It depends on their problems. Um, you know, it depends on the type of leader they are. But, it, it, you know, from a, you know, Pareto principle or majority, you know, majority of like, you know, if we have a new, you know, we have this one client we're working with in uh, China, actually, who, you know, is one of the largest suppliers of lithium cell um, for, for manufacturing in, in the world. And, you know, they came to us not because they had a real big quality problem. They came to us because they're about to expand by five, five X over the next five years. Coming from a five billion dollar company to a twenty billion dollar company in five years, and you know what was interesting is that this leader, um, you know, identified that they had issues or they had problems. They weren't perfect. He didn't know everything, um, and they wanted to support their growth for the future. And even though they're doing a really good job in quality, you know, they still had a room for improvement because you can't be perfect, and so. What, what we did in, in looking is, A, validate what he's saying is, is true, but also identify other areas that he wasn't necessarily looking at because he himself is not a quality expert, but he knew the importance of it through people that we've actually, people on his staff that we've trained at other companies. Hmm. And so, you know, we usually, we usually start with assessing the maturity of the organization and do they understand how to manage for quality and at what level? simplest terms and um, a lot of it is through, about training um the, the training is just a one of the solutions that we provide but it, it's more or less you know we're always training and educating our customers even when we're assessing and analyzing data because you know our, our main goal is to you know you, dr Duran's always was you know they got to be able to do it themselves because if you can't do it themselves they'll never get anywhere and so, you know, from day one, from the assessments, we're, we're teaching the organization of why we're doing what we're doing, how you can do it eventually. Um, but, you know, from the assessment, we look at, you know, 
leadership, down on the shop floor skills. You know, we look at cost data, financial metrics, the strategic plan to see how everything is linked together to really assess, you know, what does your approach look like? What is your, how well are you deploying your approach and what results are you getting? And, you know, when we've done a survey of 500 leaders, you know, 80% of the time, leaders are like, got great approach and deployment. And, you know, they're like, I don't know why my results aren't happening. Hmm. And it's because, A, you probably didn't assess the baseline. You're, you're solving the sporadic spike of problems and you're slapping training to everything. And so, you know, we get time and time again, like customers come to us like, hey, we want to provide training. We want to like buy training or we want you to train our people. But like you're coming to us with like the solution because training is a solution to a skill based problem. It's just like, why are your employees not skilled? You know, that is the problem you should be solving is like, you know, oh, you know, we don't have a structure to train them. We don't have content or, you know, they don't know when to use it. You know, they don't have time, you know, so we use assessments to really identify where's the biggest opportunity for improvement and attack that problem and then, you know, slowly trickle in. So sometimes companies are more mature, you know, maybe they just need coaching, just need some guidance, you know, ad hoc support. You know, if they don't know anything and they're very basic, you know, we'll, we'll lead the projects. We'll like a traditional consulting would, but eventually we would, our main goal is to, you know, a start small, prove it works, take the lessons learned and constantly uh, adopt that throughout the entire organization. So, you know, you could see results within a matter of months. Um, but, you know, we have a current customer right now we've been working with for 15 years that has seen close to $2 billion in return on investment, um, mainly from their own doing because of what we taught them how to do. So not only do we help bring the, um, you know, not only help you eat the fish, but we also teach you how to fish the fish. Well, I was curious about the impact because, you know, so often you hear that these operational improvements, you know, they're incremental. And, you know, so I was, I was kind of interested in what to do if operational improvements and quality focus actually can be an innovative uh, differentiator as well. Or if it's mostly about kind of cutting margins and, you know, you know improvements at the edge of, of the process. Yeah. And so a lot of organizations, you know, they think of cutting costs, cutting labor as the first act. And sometimes when they do go down that path, they end up removing a lot of value added activity. They wouldn't have known had they actually looked at the processes. And so, you know, the, the long-term effect is, you know, very negative because eventually the, the, the customers will become upset based on, you know, what they do. So when we think of the, the cost and, what we're really trying to get at is the cost of poor quality um, is really the difference, the quantifiable measure of waste, which is the difference between value added activity and non-value added activity. And so our goal is to eliminate the non-value activity while remaining the value added activity. Um, and sometimes it's time to hard to discern between the two. And so we have different methods to identifying what that is. And a lot of people, you know, we say the tip of the iceberg, um, a lot of what is visible is easy to quantify. What is not visible is, you know, you had a recall. Okay, you know how to quantify that recall, but how long did it take you to identify it? How long did it take you to analyze where the problem is? How long did it figure out to find the solution to it and implement it and send it back out? That's what we call like the, you know, hidden factory, the hidden steps, the hidden cost between different processes, business units. And that's what stuff is the 
underneath all that, um, the iceberg, which is the main driver of, you know, how to reduce cost effectively. But, you know, it's not all about reducing costs, but it's, you know, how do you optimize more revenue? You know, how do you prevent costs? You know, and, you know, we had a, a customer project one time where we avoided costs. How, you know, it was a children's, you know, juice box, uh, children's uh, kind of a yogurt packet and a little plastic thing on the top. You know, if that fell off, the child could choke on it and that would create a huge problem. And so that needed to be near perfect. And so they didn't really reduce costs in that solution. They prevented costs. So there's different ways to look at, you know, preventing costs, reducing, you know, hard savings, you know, looking at how to generate revenue. And so all those things working at once is really how you you look at that, um, you know, really how do you measure the ROI? But, you know, looking at the exponential improvement instead of incremental, it's, Starting small, you know, we teach 10 people, those people teach 10 people and, you know, you, you do one project then you can do three and then you can do five because everyone is learning how to either learning the mindset, the behaviors, and they're also learning the skill. And then, you know, in the future, when you, when you add technology to that, it's only going to, you know, increase that at a more dramatic effect because a lot of what they were getting trained in before may not need to get trained in it in the future. Um, which will create a better workforce, um, more highly skilled and highly talented so that they can spend more time on the value added activities, like with the customer solving problems faster. And but the big challenge, uh, isn't the big challenge also knowing how, what to measure, because like you were pointing out, if you start measuring the wrong thing because it's easier to measure or because it's convenient, right? You have a way to do it, or maybe it's cheaper to measure, or maybe some manager l- likes it. How do you avoid? I, isn't that the big uh, fall, you know, uh, drawback of some of the quality movement? The excesses of it is people start measuring whatever they want to measure, and the measurement becomes the uh, the objective. Well, yeah, I mean, now with with a lot of technology and sensors, it, it's you're producing a lot of data. Yeah, right. And too much sometimes, or at least the it, overload of it. Yeah, it, it's again, you don't know where to start. And so the Pareto principle helps you do that. You know, it's not like, you know, what, you know, how much data do you need? Billions of data points, but it's, it's, it's really, you need to tap into that data. It's like last mile problem. Like you're producing all this data and information, but you know, I've, I've talked to one customer. I'm like, you know, where do you keep your data? They're like, well, we keep about 99% of it in a database. Like we look at about 1% of it. And I'm like, if you look at 1% of it, like you're not even measuring, you're just capturing a very small fragment of all your problems. And so like there needs to be a better way to, you know, get to analyze that data, to make insights from it, to make the right decisions and knowing what problems to solve. If you're just producing a lot of data, then you're just producing the problems faster but you're still not uncovering like, where is the problem? What's the cause and effect relationship? Is it a chronic problem or is it something that can be done, you know, immediately? And, you know, does everybody know in the system how to solve a problem? You know, cause in the simplest terms and simplest sense, you teach organizations how to solve problems using the scientific method. It may seem more, <laughs> may seem like common sense because you know, sometimes it is, but it's incredibly challenging because, it's really hard to be objective and it's really hard to be objective upon yourself and and talk about problems at work because no one likes talking about problems because everyone ends up pointing the finger at each other. 
Mm-hmm. And so sometimes technology can eliminate some of those barriers, but it also can highlight more of the issues faster, quicker, so that you can look at that data and analyze it. But no matter what technology you have, you still need to understand the concepts behind what that metric is doing or what that graph is telling you or you know, what step in the problem-solving process you need to do. Because without all that, the computer isn't going to solve it for you, maybe eventually, but in the short term, it's not going to solve your problem for you because you're still going to have to build a solution for it. Joe, with uh, working in 62 different countries, you told me, and with 950 clients, what are some of the biggest surprises you've had? Well, I mean, I'm just thinking when you come into an organization and you start looking at the problem, have there been situations where you thought you were going in to solve one problem and ended up solving a different one? Or, uh, you know, I'm just trying to get a sense of why people would hire a quality consultant. And if they, if they know, if the right people know how to hire you is, is also a question, right? You know, I think the, the biggest thing that I see is, you know, sometimes how we do our assessments is we talk to people, like we listen, you know, sometimes um, in organizations, it doesn't matter the country um, you you're coming in there because these people you're coming in there a, to help the leaders solve a problem. You're also trying to get information from the people that are closest to the problem, but what's the most, and this has happened in, in any country, any industry that I've been in, is that they, they look at you as like, oh, thank God you're here. Like, you're going to help us get our voice heard or help us solve the problem. Mm-hmm. You know, it gets, you know, sometimes these people, you just kind of like listen and let them talk. And, um, and they tell you a lot without you even asking a question. And they tell you a little bit more than you probably should know, but it only is there to help. And it's almost like you're having a therapy session with hundreds of employees in different countries and different companies. But no matter the country, no matter the company, they're always there because, you know, if there are problems, you know, their leadership isn't recognized there is a problem. You're in there to help. They see you as to help. Um, and, you know, they see you, you know, I've had people cry in, in these interviews and it's just like shocking. It's just like you're under so much stress and pain and, you know, we're there to help you. I mean, we're going to solve every, you know, I have to say too, it's not everywhere because there is one client I went to actually in the United States in Tennessee that there was a little bit of a miscommunication problem because the upper leadership did not tell the plant that I was actually coming to do an, uh, an assessment. And they almost told me to leave until I did the assessment. And they're like, thank you for coming. We really appreciate what you've done and told us apologize for what happened in the beginning. And so it's just like people question it. They're objective. They're skeptical. But when you show them that you know what you know, you help them identify the problems. You help them see what is actually happening. As long as you can do that, they'll be very receptive. And, you know, that goes, that's probably the most shocking thing from it. You know, not the shock, most shocking, but it's the most consistent thing I've seen across the board. I was just curious about if you've had any surprises when you work with clients, but but more more than that, I'm also yeah, people faking data, yeah, (laughs) faking good data to to make you happy or to make or to make themselves happy. One time we had an audit like twenty different sites in like you know I don't know thirty countries, twenty twenty countries, and you know after a while like people talk and they knew we were coming and we try to be as you know because audits is like a point in time what is happening and so. You know, 
when this one country went through in like Hungary, it was like a town of like 400 people and they're like really nice people. And like <laughs> we were telling them what we were doing and they're like, hold on. You know, it was like during lunch, this is what we're going to do in the afternoon. They're like, hold on. And they didn't return for like 45 minutes. And they went out and like did things we were going to like check, like uh, inspections, like model numbers and it, it, for the inventory and stuff like that. That's really small. They like went out and just like wrote it down to see like, we're like, that's not going to make you pass. That doesn't mean you pass or they'll, they'll manipulate the data to be like, Oh, we change it. So it looks better. That is only going to hurt yourself. Like, so it's like the problem with that organization is not so much the plant failing. It's that the leadership culture makes that happen. makes that okay. <laughs> and until that changes the company, the co- the, they're going to still cut corners. Um, <laughs> Not sure what happened to those guys, but <laughs> Joe, where goes the quality movement? Where where is it heading now? What's uh, and and how do you uh, how do you track it? Uh, people who are interested in in tracking it, they can go to Gerard's site. I'm sure. How, where do you get your yeah you updates? Know, I, because you say it's scientific methods. I mean, these things are evolving, right? Th- these things, you know, these things are consistent. You know, the underlying concepts I don't think will ever change. They'll adapt, they'll morph. Someone will call something else. Another person will take what they've learned and say they're an expert in this. But, you know, we're really idea, you know, where the, the future is going in quality is, is, is things like what you guys are doing at Tula. Um, You know, looking at the concepts and fundamentals of quality and, and using technology to really transform how certain areas are done, you know. And, and so, you know, where we see a movement in, in the future of quality it's not so much the replacement of employees with robots and, and devices. It's just how does technology and how do people work together to become more efficient and not only efficient, but more effective. And, you know, how do you collect better real time data? You know, how do you use AI machine learning to help you analyze the data and help you pick out things that you may not have known before? And so it, you know, it's the things that you guys are doing, other startups are doing, other technology companies are doing the investment that companies we, we help, um, you know, look at digital transformation and, and really just giving a leg up in, you know, the, the, the workforce. And instead of, you know, training a ton of people, like I, th- I you still need training, but in, in training and how to use the technology and the underlying concepts behind it, you know, I think that'll evolve. You know, I think the days where you're sitting in the classroom for eight hours a day, learning how to do statistical analysis will die out over time, but you know, you still need to know it. And so, you may need to know 20 skills today, but in five years, you're going to need to know 40 and 20 of the skills that you learned before are obsolete. And so not only does the organization have to change, you know, the technology needs to, you know, help the organization change, but ultimately help the employee do their job more effectively. And so, you know, if the companies don't do this and, and think about the future of the workforce and how technology is going to play a role, you know, they're going to be stuck in, you know, they need to be able to scale quality. And that's why there's a lot of enterprise wide movements to start to think about how to change the behavior and mindsets, because that is the longest thing to change. And technology does not change behaviors and mindsets. Hmm. It happens all over time. Um, and it takes a long time. So in a combined effect, you know, technology is not going away. The stuff that we've been teaching for 75 years isn't going away. It's just how is it delivered, how is it managed, and who is it managed by will change. If you were to give just one piece of advice to a company where you're going in or someone who might be thinking, hmm, I wonder if I'm doing uh, these things correctly, what is the first thing they should think about? 
Let's say uh, I'm listening to this uh, podcast or watching a clip with you talking, and they people start reflecting. You know, in my organization, we, we I think we have certain challenges. What is the first step? I guess in recognizing either you you know, in this you scenario, know, or are you a frontline employee? Uh, no, I'm. Let's call me a manager. You know, I'm a manager in in a in in a manufacturing company, and I'm responsible for you know work processes and and people and and machines. A, and, and I'm yeah, sort of reflecting on this. Yeah, it, it, you know, a if if you're listening to this and you're reflecting on this and trying to see, you know, what could I do. And I think the biggest piece of advice is look at where you're at today, you know, figure out, you know, what are you doing right? What are you doing wrong? You know, try to get a baseline of your performance. You know, you can do that yourself. I mean, do the people you're working with, do they have the skills necessary to do what you do? You know, are your projects aligned to what the plant is telling you or the organization telling you, you know, and if you see problems that aren't getting done within the organization, you know, figure out ways to communicate to leadership. And that's where you use cost of poor quality, the quantifi- uh, quantification of, of problems in a monetary way. That will communicate to your leader just by saying, hey, we got a lot of problems. Yeah, that leader probably has a thousand problems. But if you look at the use the Pareto principle and figure out, you know, how do you get his attention? It's, you know, the, hey, this project can save us X amount of money or avoid X amount of money. And he'll be like, go do it because that is how he thinks and how he is taught to think is it's around money because the ultimate goal of the company is, you know, higher profitability, you know, better, better numbers. And so the ultimate goal is, you know, highest level of quality to lowest possible cost. So like as a manager, you just got to make sure you and your team are incredibly talented and capable. You know, if your company doesn't provide training, go get the training. If you don't know something, figure out where you're at. Um, you know, compare yourself to the other parts of the organization. If you're a big organization, if you're a small one, you know, just look at, you know, how things are happening. Do things happen consistently? Look at your data, you know, be objective, listen. Um, and of course, you know, if you need a third party to benchmark against, you know, in order to call. <laughs> Last thing, can you restate in a clear and short statement, uh, Joe, this following question? What is enterprise? What is enterprise grade quality in manufacturing today? It, it, one, it's understanding what the definition of quality is, and to repeat, it's you know a product is you know freedom of failure and fit for purpose. That fit for purpose across the organization is no matter the product, process, procedure, whatever it is, it's fit for purpose and it's free of failure. Focusing on two efficiency and effectiveness. The only difference between in one department to an enterprise is that it happens across the enterprise, not just in the production, but in the front office, back office, HR, sales, marketing, the entire thing. And how that happens is that people one need to understand is processes don't happen up and down; they happen across. So you have to look at who you're receiving work for and who are you sending it to. You have to look at your customer. Not just your external customer, but your customer, meaning, you know, I may have an internal customer. Utron might be receiving my work. You are my customer. I need to understand your needs. And I need to understand the person behind me needs. So as long as you can have a process that's free of failure and fit for purpose, it's efficient and effective, you're thinking of the customer, and you repeatedly do that, five people, 10 people, 1,000, 50,000, 
over time, you will see it exponentially grow across an organization. And this thing, these things do not happen overnight. Thank you so much for sharing your insights on uh, Quality Joe. You have just listened to episode 12 of the Augmented Podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim. The topic was Enterprise-Wide Quality of Manufacturing. Our guest was Joseph DeFio, CEO of Giraffe. In this conversation, we talked about the history of quality and its origins, the terms involved and the evolution of the field into lean and agile. We discussed persisting workforce challenges, emerging trends, and best practices. We cover the future outlook. What's next? How to stay up to date. My takeaway is that quality is a concept many instinctively would say they have a ha great handle on, but time and again, manufacturing consultants have uncovered through factory visits that they do not, whether they call it quality, agile, or lean. The processes that work are near timeless, but implementing them is unfortunately also a timeless task. Arguably, the productization of quality is coming, and it will, like so many other things, also be tech-enabled. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at augmentedpodcast.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you liked this episode, you might also like episode two, how to train augmented workers, or episode nine, the fourth industrial revolution post-COVID-19. Augmented, the Industry 4.0 podcast.